I'm here with Amanda Taub, who is a lawyer who teaches who teaches international law and human rights at Fordham University. She blogs at wrongyourrights.com. She's also the editor of the Lean Pub book Beyond Coney 2012, which has been recently excerpted in The Atlantic. We're going to talk today about Amanda's blogging about Coney 2012 and about her book Beyond Coney 2012, about her experiences as a writer, and her ex about her experiences using the Lean Publishing approach on Lean Pub. So Amanda, thank you again for being on the Lean Publishing podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, first of all, I like to say that I really like the titles of your writing. Uh, I think one of my favorites is Solving War Crimes with Wristbands. Do you have a favorite title out of everything you've ever written? Um, you know, I'm honestly not sure if I have a favorite title. Choosing titles is one of the hardest aspects of writing for me. Um, I never have managed to do all of the things that you're supposed to do with blog post titles in terms of keywords and SEO. So I usually end up with just really esoteric things. Um, but the Solving War Crimes with Wristbands one was actually not something I can take credit for. That Max Fisher, who is the international editor at The Atlantic, came up with that one, and I think he did a great job. Huh. Uh, let's talk about your blog. So you started your blog, Rights at com with Kate, Kate Cronin Furman in 2008. How did that come about? Um, so Kate and I have been best friends since we were very young. Um, we met in high school. Um, and she and I were both working at big law firms in New York City. Um, and as you've probably heard, the life of a junior law firm associate can be difficult at times. Um, and both of us had a real interest in human rights work. So we started this blog as a way to have an outlet for our interests and a way to kind of stay involved in that field, even though we were both doing more general litigation work. Um, and it's been a wonderful experience. It really grew from there. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, the tagline for it is uh, very serious commentary in, on very important issues. Now, <laughs> obviously, rights issues are very important, but I take it from the Winnie the Pooh style capitalization and the content that you're not too impressed with the role of the media and its typical level of commentary. Um, I think that's probably fair to say. Um, the very serious commentary on very important issues was definitely tongue-in-cheek. Um, we tend to take a fairly kind of humorous, um, sarcastic approach to the mass atrocities and other terrible things that we write about um, as a way to sort of try to avoided getting involved, getting bogged down in the sentimentality that um, is really easy to get lost in when you're writing about things that are that terrible and that serious. Right. Um, you've also recently written a few blog posts about Coney 2012, uh, including my favorite, the definitive Coney 2012 drinking game, <laughs> as well as a couple articles for The Atlantic and then the Beyond Coney 2012 Leap so can you take me mm -hmm. through that series of events? Sure. Um, so we had actually been writing about invisible children for several years. Um, the Beyond Coney 2012 book or um, video that they put out was not the first thing that they've done on this. They've been working on this issue for many years. Um, and they've always taken a kind of simplified almost pop culture based um, approach to the awareness raising and the advocacy campaigns that they've done. Um, and Kate, my co-blogger and I have always had some pretty significant concerns about that. So when the Connie 2012 video came out and became so viral so quickly, um, the critique of invisible children also went viral. 
So the first thing that happened was that a really old post of ours from, I think, early 2009 um, suddenly got more hits than almost the entire rest of the blog combined in the last year. Um, and it happened to have gotten picked up by a couple of the sites that were doing kind of ground zero for the critique of the video um, and just kind of spread from there. Oh, is um, the one with the picture with the, with the people? Exactly, exactly. Right. So that was a photograph taken by our friend Glenna Gordon, um, who's a very talented photojournalist. Um, and it just shows how this kind of thing is kind of driven by media and events. She took this photo of the three Invisible Children founders posing with um, guns they had borrowed from South Sudanese rebels at the Juba peace talks. And no news organizations were interested in it at all because Invisible Children wasn't really in the news at the time. Um, and so she ended up letting us publish it on her blog, on our blog. And then years later, the post went viral, the photo went viral, um, and um, it all of a sudden was everywhere. Right. So that happened. Then we followed that up with our drinking game post, um, because, you know, God forbid we be substantive. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Um, but we tried to use the drinking game as a sort of humorous way to point out some of the issues that we had with this video in terms of who was allowed to speak, who was treated as having agency, um, namely the kind of young, attractive white people from San Diego, um, and who, and then contrast that with the portrayal of Africans, particularly Ugandans, um, who the only Africans portrayed in the video um, were, of course, the rebels themselves um, who were demonized, and, you know, pretty rightly so. Um, and then uh, this young boy, Jacob, um, in some footage from many years ago when he was still a child, um, discussing his own experiences as a um, former child soldier in the Lord's Resistance Army and what had happened to his brother. Um, but even that conversation didn't put his experiences at the center. It was really about Jason Russell, the Invisible Children founder who made the video, and his sort of heroism. So he, it was about him kind of making this promise to this child um, and you know, promising that they were going to stop the Lord's Resistance Army and save the children. Um, and you know, he was literally interrupting this child as he was trying to tell his story. Um, so the drinking game was designed to kind of draw attention to some of those things in a somewhat fun way. Um, we definitely didn't intend it to be an actual drinking game. I, I don't think a human being could survive <laughs> no. all of the things that we suggested. <laughs> so then how did that, uh, so then from there, um, what led you to uh, the Beyond Coney 2012 book and also the articles in the Atlantic like how did that come about um so the Atlantic articles developed pretty organically um we had been in touch with Max Fisher in the past um he had kind of emailed us for our perspective on some other things but we'd never written anything for him um and he emailed us and said he'd seen the drinking game post and um would we like to write something for the Atlantic um that didn't involve quite so many swear words and dangerous activities. Um, and we said, of course, because we think that's a great publication. Um, and so we did that. Um, and then we were also getting at the same time, a lot of media requests. A lot of people were asking us to go on radio shows, podcasts, TV shows. Um, 
And we realized that we were over and over saying, you know, the problem here is the lack of context, the lack of nuance. Um, this is giving an oversimplified version of this conflict in a way that's actually harmful to policy and the, you know, attempts to achieve a resolution to the conflict. But there wasn't a resource out there to improve that situation. Um, the information wasn't really available in a kind of packaged way that was accessible to people who didn't have a background in African studies or political science or you know, something of that nature. Um, and so I just decided to put one together. Uh, I reached out to some of the other people who were commentating on the video and asked each of them to submit a brief essay um, grounded in their own kind of experience and expertise. Um, and we put it together in about a month and then released it to coincide with Invisible Children's Cover the Night poster day on April 20th. Right. And what made you choose LeanPub for the book? And how did you discover LeanPub? Um, so you guys had been on my radar for a while. I'd actually bought a couple of your books, I think. Um, and um, I th think the first place I saw you was through the Venture Hacks website, although okay. that wasn't actually a book I ended up buying. Um, and I just thought your model was really great, and it seemed like it would be a really good fit for the book that I was putting together, because we were putting it together so quickly. Um, I knew that there was a chance that not everyone would have their essay done by the time that I was going to release it. Um, so I really liked that you had the option of kind of adding and changing um, the content over time, even after the book had been published. Right. I also really liked your flexible pricing option. Um, this, you know, I wanted this book to be accessible to as many people as possible. Um, obviously, you know, there were some costs in putting it together, both in terms of um, time and things like licensing photographs. Um, and so I wanted to be able to charge for it, but I didn't want the cost to be a barrier to anyone who wasn't in a position to pay. Um, and so I really liked that I could basically make it donation only by setting the minimum price to zero. Right. Yeah, so your book has a free minimum price, and the suggested mm -hmm. price is two ninety nine. Mm -hmm. And like it's been out for a few weeks, and you've got hundreds of readers and earned some money, and some mm -hmm. people are paying more than the suggested price. Are you happy with the results so far? I'm really happy. Um, you know, I had set myself a pretty modest goal for this because I wasn't sure what the readership would be like. I wasn't sure, you know, how popular a topic this would be. It wasn't clear whether people would still be interested in the Lord's Resistance Army and this conflict after the hubbub around invisible children died down, right. especially because the narrative there started to sort of spin off in a different direction once Jason Russell had his nervous breakdown, yeah. um, which was very sad, but also not in any way related to what the book was about. <laughs> um, and so I wasn't sure how much of a readership there would be. And it's really exceeded my expectations. Um, the, you know, we've just been marketing it through my blog and some of the other authors' blogs and Twitter. Um, and I think as of today, we have something like 750 downloads. Yeah. Um, which I'm, I'm really happy about. That's really kind of exceeded my expectations for only a couple of weeks. Um, my hope is that we can... Um, make this more of a classroom tool. Right. I'm still expecting a couple more chapters to come in, um, but once that's done, I'm going to put together a teacher's guide, um, and hopefully um, that will be something that teachers can use in their classroom if they want to cover this topic. Excellent. Um, so you've already gotten a lot of feedback 
about your blog posts. Um, on, have you gotten much feedback from readers of the Beyond Coney 2012 book? Um, not as much as I expected. Um, I have gotten some. It's mostly been um, very positive. Um, a couple of kind of more critical responses, um, but those have been made in person um, from activists who I kind of already knew who read the book and felt that, you know, we hadn't kind of fully seen their perspective or um, something along those lines. Um, but it's been really great to have it open up that kind of dialogue. Um, and um, yeah, I think that so far people seem to be enjoying it. Um, it was the first ebook I'd ever written, so hmm. I wasn't really sure what to expect. <laughs> um, so let's see. So in terms of in terms of that, so the lead, the lean publishing. Um, so hold on. Uh, in terms of the community aspect, like, would you want us to try to do more to enable community around your book, or do you think that the blog um, fills that role adequately for you? I think that the blog and Twitter fill that role pretty well. Um, you know, I I feel like I already have that platform available to people, and I've made sure to put up a couple of posts on the blog so that people could comment um, in the comment section of those posts if they had something that they wanted to say. Um, and same with Twitter. You know, I've been happy to engage with people on Twitter, um, and definitely some of the other authors have as well. Right. Um, and so I honestly think that you guys probably would have a difficult time matching yeah, that, especially we, we, for a book with multiple authors. Yeah, no, we're not trying to be Twitter. Uh, Twitter, right. Twitter does a pretty good job of being Twitter. Um, uh, um, in terms of how we could make Leanpad better for you as an author, is there anything that you wish we could improve or fix or improve your, the experience getting started as a writer on Leanpad? I know it's kind of rough sometimes. Um, you know, Honestly, you guys really exceeded my expectations. I had set aside an entire day to do the formatting on these posts, and I think it only ended up taking me like an hour and a half. Nice. Um, so, you know, that was great. I, I always assume that especially, you know, doing something for the first time, I always assume that, um, you know, things will go wrong, that it'll be really complicated and difficult, and it was fine. I think I encountered one minor... Um, technical problem and I emailed you guys and got a response in I think five minutes and it was three in the morning <laughs> so I don't that was amazing that was great um, and um, yeah it was very easy I had used markdown before um, so that probably helped um, but you know it's, it's very easy did the other authors did you import did you did they write in markdown or did they write in HTML and you converted it or how did it work they just sent me text files and okay. I did the formatting myself. Um, the people were kind of submitting things from all over the world via various um, kind of word processing and rich text formats. And so it seemed like it was going to be easiest for me to just say, I'll deal with it rather than dealing with the process of them formatting it and me checking it, et cetera. That makes uh, sense. And yeah. yeah, you guys made it so easy that that was fine. Um, I think, you know, there are, maybe a couple of small things that um, would make it a little, you know, could be fun. Like I used the um, heading format. I put the author's names as a second level heading so that they would show up in the table of contents, um, ah. which, um, which I think, you know, if you had some way to make that slightly more automatic for multiple authored books, that would be great. That makes uh, sense. I haven't thought of that. Yeah, this is one of, this is nice for us because, other than um, we we did a project, uh, the uncensored project, uh, ourselves about like a month or so, more than a month ago now I think, 
But mm-hmm. other than that, we haven't had that many um, multiple like books following your model of like one editor and multiple contributors. Um, so we mm-hmm. haven't really put much thought into the formatting. But I know what you mean. Like we, we you know, I ended up making a cover page with a whole bunch of author names, like a, yeah. cover, a cover image, and yeah. So we we should actually think about that. You're right. Um, okay, so are you still fine on time? I know we got started late because I have. Some I'm fine. Yeah, this okay. is fine. Um, okay, so let's talk a bit about more about Coney Twelve and Beyond Coney Twenty Twelve. Um, mm-hmm. So who who should read Beyond Coney Twenty Twelve? Like who's your ideal reader? Um, so this book was written for people who had watched the video and wanted to learn more um, and kind of didn't know where to start. So it's designed for lay readers. Um, you don't need to have any background in um, you know anything to do with the conflict or political science, anything like that, to be able to get a lot out of this book. Um, the authors all consciously avoided things like jargon and acronyms, made sure to under, you know explain everything pretty clearly. Um, and so I think it would be great for, you know, the casual reader who's read the, who's seen the video and wants to learn more about it. Um, also, I would love it if it was used in classrooms. I've been contacted by a few different teachers um, to ask if I think it would be appropriate for high school students. And I think the answer is yes, especially given that they were, um, you know, essentially the initial targets of the Invisible Children marketing campaign. I think they're exactly who should be learning more about it. Um, and yeah, I think it's just a great kind of background tool for people who are interested in learning more about this specifically or interested in thinking more about advocacy and how we can ethically put together good advocacy campaigns, ethically use awareness campaigns, um, to kind of approach the issue of massive human rights violations that are happening outside of our own countries, Um, which I think is something that we need to pay attention to more now that that kind of activism is becoming so much easier. Yeah, with the internet. Yeah. Um, So here's here's a, so one thing I, one reaction I had when I, in terms of the video and then the book and the the commentary, um, from my perspective, like, you know, I think there are many flaws with Invisible Children um, and the video and people's reactions to it. I mean, I kind of have seen it sort of like, kind of like the Twilight or the Hunger Games of advocacy. <laughs> um, well, it, it, I mean, uh, it's terrible to use it to re- reference the Hunger Games, but, you know. I love but, the Hunger Games, I have to say. Maybe but, it's the Twilight. <laughs> okay, so maybe it's the Twilight of advocacy. But uh, so my question, though, is despite all that, do you think the world is better off for that video having been done the way that it was done, even given the way it was done, et cetera, like, do you think the world's better off for have for the video having been done and gone viral the way it did? With everything that was involved with it, like, you, you know, the you video... You know, honestly, I don't think so. Um, I think that there... I would love to be able to say yes, and I think that there's a real urge to say, well, people got this small amount of information and it's better than nothing. Um, but I actually disagree with that. I think that this wasn't just information. This was a very specifically targeted campaign designed to provoke a political response and to do so in what I think was a pretty irresponsible way. Um, they were putting out this narrative, which had a very, you know, to to say the least, extremely narrow view of what was actually going on there. Um, I think, 
you could make an argument that it was actively misleading. Um, and it's designed to provoke a U.S. government response. Um, and I think that you have to have a responsible attitude towards using power in that way. They're asking for a military intervention um, in a long-running regional conflict in a very unstable part of the world. And I don't think that they were really that honest about the potential consequences of that, who we would be working with, um, what that type of military intervention necessarily looks like. Um, you know, when you say Kony needs to be apprehended, what you're really saying is you need to send an army to surround him and his army of people who were unwilling combatants who have been forced into combat and have a battle with them. Um, and frankly, that is in many ways the best case scenario because it's not clear that you'll even be able to track them in the area of the world where they, where they operate. Um, it's very likely that that kind of military operation will provoke serious reprisals against civilians in the past. Um, that's exactly what has happened. Um, and I think that the video doesn't take responsibility for any of those outcomes, doesn't even hint that they're a possibility. Um, and I'm not really sure that that is ethical or fair either to the people who will suffer the consequences if that indeed does happen or to the supporters who watch the video and are told only about the potential positive outcomes of their actions and not about the potential negative ones. Not really sure that it's fair to kind of include people in something like that without giving them an understanding of what you're really asking them to do. Hmm. Um. So another idea I'd like to talk about is the idea of standing, because that's an interesting idea, and the idea of armchair critics. Mm -hmm. um, so you've discussed the notion that people who criticize the video have been un unfairly attacked as armchair critics, which is an ad hominem mm -hmm. attack. Now, and then the, the, the flip side, though, is that people who forward the video are also in their armchairs. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying that's hypocritical, right? Um, so I think I had two concerns with the armchair critic kind of criticism that was bandied about here. Um, the first one was that the vast majority of people who were criticizing this video were not armchair anything. You right. know, they were people who have been working in this region of the world, in many cases actually working on peace negotiations with the Lord's Resistance Army, you know, people who had, been, had dedicated significant portions of their career to trying to end this conflict. Um, and to call them armchair critics as compared to the people from Invisible Children who have also been actively working to end this conflict. Um, I think, to me, that indicated that by armchair critic, they didn't really mean, we don't think you're doing anything. They meant, we want to listen to the person who is most like us and has made a heroic sacrifice. Um, so these kind of young kids from Invisible Children who went off to Africa and promised to be heroes and made this film. Um, it's a great heroic narrative, especially because they did have the option of just staying in the U.S. and leading a comfortable life and, you know, going to law school or something like me. <laughs> um, and instead, they decided to found this NGO and devote their careers to ending this conflict. And I think that if we focus too much on those people and say that only people who have made those types of heroic sacrifices get to speak about an issue, 
then you end up really narrowing the field of who is allowed to talk because that means you don't listen to people who are from the region who didn't make the heroic sacrifices because they're just they're just living it that's just their lives um, you don't listen to the people who work in a quieter way um, who are academics or government negotiators working on peace agreements or things like that um, people who don't place themselves at the center of the narrative um, and don't kind of trumpet their own experience in that way um, and I think that that's really unfortunate so that was kind of one big concern with the armchair critics narrative is whose voice are you shutting down by making that criticism? Right. Um, and then my second one was just to say, look, this whole campaign is about getting people who are not professionals involved in this activism. Um, you know, people call it clicktivism or slacktivism. And I actually don't buy into that. I have no problem with internet-based advocacy, I think it's tremendously powerful um, and very democratic, and I think that's wonderful. Um, but I think that you can't have it both ways. You can't say, we want to have this democratic moment, movement of people who watch the video and you know tweet at celebrities and sign letters to Congress, um, but don't need to have any specific professional expertise, and but then insist that they're only allowed to do that if they follow the specific expert who's been designated on the basis of their heroic experiences. Um, you know, you either get to have a democratic dialogue where everyone can legitimately speak or not. Right. Um, so, but regarding that, so you're not, you wouldn't say that we should reflexive, reflexively um, dismiss things just because the, the protagonist of it is say a, you know, blonde haired, you know, person from San Diego also, mm -hmm. right? Like, they have standing as well. They just don't have any extra standing. I think that's right. Um, you know, I... And I have talked to many of the people who work with invisible children. You know, they... Uh, their hearts are firmly in the right place. Many of them have made very significant personal sacrifices, um, including one of their staff members who was actually killed in a terrorist attack several years ago um, while in Uganda working on their program. Um, and so... I don't doubt their commitment to this. Um, and I certainly wouldn't want anyone to be reflexively dismissed for any reason. Right. Um, but I think that it's important to have that attitude rather than the flip side, which is because of their dedication, because of their sacrifice, they get more standing to speak. That is not, a, that's not something I buy into. I think that all the experience in the world won't make you right if you're wrong. Right. Um, do you think in terms of some of, not in terms of your reaction, but in terms of some of the critical reaction, uh, some, some, I think some of the critical reaction to me reminds me of uh, when, I, when I learned that the most highlighted Kindle passage of all time was because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them, which is from a Hunger Games book. I, I, I was kind of <laughs> like, like, really? This is like oh. the most popular thing ever highlighted? on huh. a Kindle ever. So do you, do you think that some of the backlash is kind of about maybe either jealousy or like kind of like thinking about of all the of all the causes and all the videos in the whole world that that could have ever blown up this way that this is the one that did. Do you think there's a, there's an aspect of sort of resentment or jealousy toward like the if the, the it's not overnight success obviously because they've been at it a long time but like how of how this came about? You know, I honestly don't think so. 
Um, because most of the people who have been making this critique um, are in the same position as um, my blog was in, which is they've been making it for years and the critique didn't get any attention until the video got this much attention. Right. But that's the only thing that has changed. Um, oh, so, okay. you know, I think it's just that both things suddenly became more high profile. Okay. Um, and, and in that sense, I think that it's been a really good thing. I think that it has opened up the debate about this kind of advocacy from being something that happened only inside a certain subsection of the kind of aid and human rights community and opened it up to being something that included more people, included more, you know, mainstream commentators, included more people who were sharing critiques on Facebook and Tumblr. Um, and I think that is wonderful. But, but if, if for something to get mainstream, it's got to get dumbed down, though, right? Like, everything so, mainstream gets dumbed down. And that's true. Um, and there are a lot of people, um, you know, I think Nick Kristoff is probably the most notable champion of the idea that making something mainstream is itself important enough to make it worth dumbing down. Um, and I don't agree um, because I think that you can simplify things in a responsible way but past a point it becomes irresponsible you're leaving out important information and if you're asking people to make a decision based on that information especially a decision about something as important as the use of military force which is you know a super big deal <laughs> um, there's a minimum amount of information that I think people need to have to make a responsible decision about that. And if you are the person who is putting out the narrative, make, asking them to make that decision and actively dumbing it down, actively simplifying it beyond the point where they can make an informed decision, then I just don't think that's the right thing to do. And that's a losing battle for you're, me to you're fight. An, you're an amazing optimist. I am an amazing optimist. You can think um, that, so you can think I, I can make a viral video that didn't, that wasn't simple, like oversimplified. Like, no, I'm saying that if you have a choice to make between your video going viral in an oversimplified way and a video that doesn't go viral and maybe doesn't have the policy impact that you would hope it would, but is more responsible, I'm saying I think the right thing to do is to choose the second one. Ah, okay. So it's like a, it's like a utilitarianism versus... Um, can't kind of thing. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Um, you know, I think that there's this idea out there that awareness is in and of itself so powerful um, and has some sort of magical ability to end mass atrocities that, you know, making a viral video is in and of itself a legitimate goal, no matter kind of what needs to be sacrificed along the way. And I just really question that. Um, you know, I think that it is no frankly nobody is totally clear on how that's supposed to work um but really the 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 general theory is that you build up enough pressure among people in america and other western countries um to put pressure on our own governments to then put pressure on the governments of the places where this is happening or do things like send troops to assist in a military intervention or something like that and mm -hmm. I just really question whether that's the right thing to do. Um, you know, by placing ourselves at the center of the narrative, especially the policy decision, it really changes the incentives. Um, it really changes the incentives for what um, types of policies are suggested and pursued. 
Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that, um, you know, a video like that gets a lot of traction for something like capture him and send him to be put on trial at the ICC, whereas the people from the region of Central Africa where this army actually operates, there is dramatically less support for military intervention, um, partly because they don't trust the militaries in question for good reason. They themselves have um, committed really terrible human rights abuses, um, and partly because it's their own brothers and sons and daughters who have been kidnapped by this rebel organization, and they know that a military solution means that a lot of those kids are going to get killed. Um, and so there is much more support for a negotiated peace um, that would allow the lower level soldiers to return home to their families. Um, and that's completely missing from this type of narrative. Um, and I think a big reason why is that if you want something to go viral, you need your single call to action. You know, it's, it's true whether you're running an advertising campaign or a viral video advocacy campaign. And it's hard to shape a call to action for high schoolers sitting in the United States that centers around a negotiated peace in a different country involving several different nations in the region. You know, I don't, I'm not even sure what that would say. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that makes sense. Well, Amanda, this is very interesting for me. Um, I think I, I've <laughs> given this, the, this and then the couple attempts we had getting started. I think I've probably taken enough of your your Monday. So uh, thank you very much for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk to you.